Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumbpicks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra-tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. 
And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. Well, hello, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. Steve Dawson here. This is episode 109, 109 of the podcast. Thanks again for listening. My guest on the show today is the incredible producer and engineer, Mr. Matt Ross Spang. Before we get going here this month, I would just like to mention that we're up for a podcast award this year. And since that is a listener voted award, I would love for you to go over to their website and give us a vote. You just go to the podcast awards, which are podcastawards.com and click on the blue box you will see right there to vote. And after you sign in, there's a bunch of categories and you can vote on any of the categories or any of the podcasts that you know and love. And you will find music makers and soul shakers in the music category. So head over there, check it out. Give us a vote. Thanks. And I hope you're all doing well. Uh, I've been really busy. Things are starting to crank back up around these parts, which is awful nice. I've been doing these remote sessions all through COVID that I've mentioned here and there throughout the show. And we actually did a a contest for young songwriters to enter their songs. And we were going to pick winners and record their music with them remotely. And that has now finished and is a complete project and you can go and check out those youngsters that's all up at thehenhousestudio.com and you can click on the henhouse express and that's our remote recording crew and right at the top of that page is uh, some information on the contest that we had for the kids it's called henhouse express junior and they're great it was so fun and cool to work with those kids, a couple from New York, a couple from Ontario, a couple from Saskatoon. So go have a listen. All right, Matt Ross Bang. What a dude. This conversation was actually the first time that we'd ever spoken, but I've since doing this, I've worked with him on a project and know firsthand what a badass he is. Oh yeah. Matt grew up in Memphis and he spent his entire career there more or less. I mean, he travels and does things in other places, but basically he has set up shop in Memphis his whole career. He's embraced and enhanced the whole Memphis vibe like no one else. I'm not going to go into his history too much here because we talked through most of it in this interview. But the things that you need to know are that Matt started out basically interning at Sun Records in Memphis and working his way up to chief engineer there. So Sun Studios is the famous studio, of course, where Elvis and Johnny Cash and all that were recorded by uh, Sam Phillips. And um, it's still a functioning studio and museum. And Matt was kind of in charge of that place. So he was the chief engineer there running the studio and he was doing tours uh, in there all, all day. So the tours would happen all day and then they would shut that down around six and then the sessions would kick in. And he did that like day in and day out for about 10 years. And uh, so after doing that, he started getting offers to work on outside projects like independently and he took a leap into the world of freelancing left his job at sun and started working for other artists and producers amassing a killer list of credits 
on records by Margot Price, Jason Isbell, and John Prine, and lots more. He then set up shop at Sam Phillips Recording, which is where I worked with him, and man, that place is incredible. It's where Sam Phillips went to when he outgrew Sun, and it's like a time capsule in there. Amazing rooms and echo chambers that are exactly how they were back in the day sort of. Even the halls and offices are straight out of the 1960s. So he's been in there and has worked on some amazing stuff, including Al Green, and even getting to mix a bunch of cool Elvis Presley recordings that were unearthed. So yeah, he's got a ton of great credits and has done some amazing work. But what I love about this guy and the way that he operates is that he has an incredible understanding about vintage equipment and aesthetics but he's not hung up on it like some people get with when they're really into like old school recording techniques. He is perfectly willing and happy to roll with modern stuff and modern equipment, but he's very dialed in to an old way of recording that I really relate to. Uh, he loves recording live. He loves to capture sounds with a minimal microphone setup rather than, you know, 12 mics on a drum kit, he'll use two. One microphone on a horn section or a group of singers. And he makes it sound modern and incredible. And he has some really cool techniques that are uh, unlike anybody that I've ever seen or worked with. Now that I've worked with him, I've seen him do it as well. And uh, I just find his whole vibe and sound and skill set to be very inspiring and inspired. And I think that his work is definitely worth investigating for that reason alone. So Matt's next phase, though, is going to be moving into, very soon, into an incredible new studio that he's built in Memphis in this huge warehouse that was a Sears distribution center. And it's been repurposed recently into all kinds of restaurants, studios, radio stations. There's a listening library, stuff like that. And it's called Crosstown. And... I saw the studio nearing completion, and it's incredible. And we talk about it here, but that's what we're talking about when we mention Crosstown. It's this huge complex that his studio is a part of. So here we go, yakking about all this stuff. Please check out Matt's work if you don't know it already. And keep up with his whereabouts on Instagram, where he's very active as Monsieur Matt. And at his website, which is southerngrooves.com. All right, let's get down to it. Here is my conversation with Matt Ross Spang. Enjoy. I've always found it really interesting when recording folks um, really identify with a, a region and a sa- like a regional sound. And you seem to have really embraced the Memphis sounds. I mean, not that there's just one sound coming out of Memphis, but like a classic Memphis sound, like you've really mastered the idea of it and, and kind of embraced. And I know that originally you're from Memphis, but I don't know much about like, you know, whether you actually grew up there your whole life. Uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about, um, you know, growing up in that area, if that's where you're from, and um, and just how you got into music in the first place, and what Memphis meant to you as a youngster. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I, I was born and raised in Memphis, grew up here, and um, uh, my parents had really great music taste growing up, so I was hearing a lot of Dylan and Van Morrison, and um, my dad was really into the alt country, like the beginnings of like Sun Vault and Wilco and Uncle Tupelo. And then, of yeah. course, we had all the Memphis music that, you know, is around. Um, it can't, it, like, it's in the air, it follows you wherever you go. So even when we go out of town, I hear like Johnny Cash, Big River, or, you know, a whole <laughs> yeah. lot of shaking going on. It's like everywhere, um, which is great. But uh, so I, music was always around, and I would, you know, I. 
I would make little cassette mixtapes and stuff, and and bright CDs were coming out. I would buy a lot of CDs. Uh, it wasn't until I was like, um, I think I was about eleven when my folks visited some of my dad's family in Ohio, and one of the cousins had gotten a guitar, and um, I I don't think he cared about it, but I just sat there. Remember in that back bedroom and just like I couldn't do anything on it by no means was I a prodigy or, <laughs> or anything close to that but this thing yeah. was so cool this guitar was so cool I don't think he had an amp at the time it was like a Telecaster ripoff but um, when we got home that was my big thing is I wanted to learn guitar so I started taking lessons from this guy funny enough his name was Mike Love um, really <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think he could tell he was a great teacher because he said, listen, we're not going to worry about, learn, like, you need to learn how to tune it, obviously, but we're not going to worry about scales and stuff till you know if you really like it. So bring it, bring me, like, 20 songs you want to learn, and we'll slowly learn those. And then I think he kind of realized, like, I never really wanted to learn scales or anything. So we just right, would right. go over songs and kind of jam a little bit over the over the while. I forget how long I went with them, but... um. What, what kind of tunes were you learning? Like, what were you into when you were that age? Uh, well, you know, it's funny enough, like, I would bring him some things, and I remember he was like, let's let's hold off on this till you get some, like, skills, or, like, you know, build up some skills. So I remember, like, the James Bond theme would be, <laughs> like, something we would, <laughs> we would work That's on. That's like, badass guitar, man. Kind of single note stuff, you know, and then it right, would right. evolve into, like, I remember Secret Agent Man. I guess it was a lot of spy stuff, because I remember we did Secret Agent Man, too. But I think he was wanting me to learn simple melody things. I was never into, like, flashy guitar. I never wanted to learn how to do pull-offs or big solos. I've never been a Les Paul guy. Uh, so I think it was more of, like, simple simple things like that I really liked and rhythmic things. And then um, that translated much later in the life too with with session stuff but um uh, I started really focused on guitar back then I was really into basketball and then when guitar came along basketball just went completely away I think the minute I started learning guitar the minute I started like getting okay at guitar I could no longer catch a a ball like I lost I definitely lost some sports ability your mojo I, shifted I think it well I I don't, I, I mean <laughs> I think innately it just went away it was like you can't uh-huh you're, you're you're doing music, so you're gonna be. I was never like great at basketball either, but I just really became bad, I think. And then, um, and then I really just focused on guitar every night. Never never saw it as like a a career or anything. I just was like I was obsessed with it. I'm sure you were the same way. You played till your fingers bleed, and you would yeah get to pick up the next day, and and that really consumed me. And then when I was about 16, uh. Uh, no, sorry. When I was 14, my parents bought me two hours of studio time at Sun Studio. and um, Thanks, Mom and Dad. Yeah, thanks, parents. And and I had played with a bunch of guys in high school and stuff, but, like, we weren't in middle school, but, like, we weren't – we never, like, were – we knew we weren't good enough to, go, like, go play a gig somewhere, and that just didn't seem feasible. Like, we just would jam and write up in the bedroom, you know, and play in the garage or whatever, and then they – we – we just want to get in the studio. That was the big goal. And so they, my cousins were the general managers and stuff of Sun. And so oh. my parents booked the time through them. We got two hours with this guy, James Lott. He was incredible. He's um, mm-hmm. a one of the greatest guitar players I've ever known. But he wore a beret. 
and he cussed like a sailor. He chain smoked, and I was 14, so that was incredible. That's cool. <laughs> and he would smoke inside, you know, and he was like moving the faders, and he tre- he really treated us like we deserved to be there, and we absolutely didn't. And um, I recorded a couple bad things that'll hopefully never be heard again. <laughs> but I remember the I remember the guy I was with. Um, he kind of f- fell asleep. Like he took a nap while he was mixing. Like he he was not at all um, intrigued by that part. And I thought that was the coolest part, watching him with the big board and the effects and changing things and EQing things. And so right away, that was like you were drawn. To that, that was it. And that's like that. Yeah. Then then the guitar almost became like basketball. You know what I mean? It kind of went away. And and he told me to come back and intern. And I couldn't drive obviously. So when I start well, at sixteen, I started working at Sun. As a tour guide, because it's a it's a museum during the day. Yeah, and um, uh, I there was an intern at that time, but he sh- quickly got let go. For I, f- I think he I forget what happened, but he was quickly gone, and then I got to start interning too. So the studio Amazing. was start recording at six o'clock at night. Um, but giving giving the tours was one of the best things ever because I get out of high school, I go straight to Sun, and then you're you're giving a forty five minute hour long tour to tourists. Uh, once every hour or so. And um, it got me really good about, you know, being comfortable in front yeah. of lots of people and entertaining them and making, yeah. you know, it's, Sun is a interesting place. And, and that's also where I learned, what I learned from James during sessions. You know, it's it's all these people's right. dreams to come record in this room. Sure. And they'll come from all over the world to come record there. And you got to make them feel at home and make them know that they're welcome because they're so intimidated and stuff. And that that has been a great um, lesson for any other studio, but but really learning it there was a big. That's interesting because that is a big thing about production. The production side of things is like getting people comfortable in their environment and in a situation that wouldn't necessarily be comfortable at all. Exactly, and also like so many people that would come to Sun, it was just their dream to come record. They may yeah. not have been super talented, or or you know, a lot of them even weren't even like really musicians. They just wanted to come record. Sure, that's right, Mama in Elvis's room or or something. Sure. Or we'd have we'd even have like company retreat things and you know making them a feel at home but then also they would always you know they always start by apologizing like i'm wasting your time or (laughs) you know this is not good enough for you and and making them know no this is this is what i love to do and this is i'm here for you and you're not wasting my time and that applies even now because so many people worry that they're you know they're struggling to get a solo or something that they're wasting your precious time and and no we're we're here to create so i'm i'm here as long as you want so was is that what it what it was a lot back then was like one off like just 3 hour sessions of people coming through a lot of tourists wanting to record and stuff like that is that was that basically the gig at that point Man, it was everything. So yeah, you would do like a L. I always remember that some of the funniest, weirdest ones would be right neck butted up to like a really cool one. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I forget who it was, but like we had T Bone Burnett came in with John Mellencamp, and they did three days with um, uh, Jay Belaros and uh, Mark Rabot, some of your previous pod pod uh, people, mm-hmm. and uh, Dave Rowe, my f- good friend Dave Rowe. Were there a lot of quirks with that room? Uh yeah, I mean Sun is uh that's another thing. I I kind of grew I grew up in the studio of like a another era in the sense that that studio is one room, no baffles. I I built I later built a baffle or two, uh but uh no isolation. Yeah. Um yeah. you know, I we when I first started there we had 
uh, like early di- bad digital equipment and uh, an old analog soundcraft board. And then uh, as I became the head engineer, I slowly made it more period correct while also having a modern Pro Tools rig and some stuff because not everyone wants to sound like 1951 in there, which I, right. I'm i totally fine with. I, I, I want to be able to do anything. Um but yeah, you know, you can't you can only put so many microphones in there. Your your vocal microphone is your snare reverb yep, <laughs> microphone yep, and yep. and um Is there a chamber? A real, is there an echo chamber in that? There's building? no no actual real echo chamber, but Sam Phillips used the front office kind of as a chamber on you can hear it on Driving Slow, Johnny London. It was a saxophone. It's actually the first record released on Sun. They did all live to mono, like kind of Alan Lomax style. Yep. And then I think like you know, the next after those three days, I had like a Elvis impersonator from Denmark or something who couldn't speak a lick of English. <laughs> Learned to speak phonetically by listening to Elvis. Yeah, but you know, so you get all these random people, then you get these great musicians and these not great musicians. You get these uh, well-known people and these not well-known people. Mm-hmm. It was such a, such a thing, but it was it was really amazing that, like I said, because you're making their dreams come true, and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Who they are, like you're, you're never good, and you're never too good to make that happen for somebody or to help facilitate that. So it was, right. I, I loved every day, even even when the person you know was doing something wild. They all treated the building with respect, and and me, yeah. and and, yeah. and and I get right back to them. So it was, <clears throat> it really didn't matter to me. And to make make it's easy to make you know Chris Isaac or some of these guys who record their sound good because they already sound good. So you just mm-hmm. you can put a mic on them and just stay out of the way. And then some of these folks, you had to work really hard to figure out where to move the microphone or adjust stuff for it would would be more pleasing. And, and that, that was really helpful too. Uh, I would use that front room. It had like a great drum room sound. Like just leave the door open and put a mic up. You'd also pick up all the motorcycles going by. <laughs> right, Wednesday, yeah. That's a busy Wednesday street. nights. Wednesday nights in uh, Memphis in the summer is bike night on Beale Street, so you'd have just insane. You can actually hear it on a Margot Price song on Midwest Farmer's Daughter. I think it's, um, I'll have to look at the song title, I could tell you, but there's a motorcycle. when We just left it on the recording because it went through the front room. Sam never had any type of reverb. It just slapback echo and then the actual rooms. So Um, just tape tape echo was the only? Yeah, tape echo. And then the front room he kind of used as, it was a more reverberant room, but um, yeah, I, I had a plate reverb and and then the slapback too, but um, but yeah, it's it's a, just a different way of recording, you know. Less less is more with microphones and gear, and it's a great way to learn what you what you do now, like coming up through that. Absolutely, absolutely, that system, man. You have you have to work harder for that, and then also we had to tear down every night because there would be hundreds of tourists, tourists. going through there the next day, and and right, you don't want them touching your microphone so I had to be able to set up a whole session in about 30 45 minutes every wow. night and re- bring it back up the next day and actually Steve it was really cool to tear down because obviously you could leave the control room somewhat set up so you you didn't have to start you know you have to check everything completely from scratch but um but you'd re-put the mics back up and you would always kind of like um, I still this day I'll still like come in the next day and pull up this previous day and then wiggle stuff around a little bit because you hear stuff differently the next day and, yeah. and and change stuff so it was pretty cool to not be it helped you make not it, it helped you not be precious about oh my god right. did someone bump the snare mic you know like yeah and, and like they would have been in the it. in those in the in the fifties there like they probably 
you know, that probably happened all the time. Where yeah, and they didn't like, even oh, have them like different today. They wouldn't even have a mic on the snare back then because it was already loud enough. <laughs> right. So did the guy that you learned from there, did, was he really hip to the, like all the recording techniques that came out of that era and that room? Uh, a little bit. He, you know, he grew up, uh, he got in the studio game much later. So he um, was much more, more of like an 80s, 90s is where he started really recording. So, you know, the kick drum mic was more inside the kick drum. There was yeah. different things. And, and not this is not a, a negative against James at all because he was a phenomenal musician and, and engineer. Um, but I don't think he was super interested in – he could definitely make it sound, you know, do the slap back and do stuff like that, but he wasn't necessarily interested in, in – um, going back to live to mono or anything i think he would yeah. would embrace it um but i was a little bit more of a uh a purist uh, I don't, not purist i wanted to i think you know i grew up in the time of computer recording and stuff so when i got there there was a big two-inch machine that was just like a big ashtray and right. uh i wanted to hear what that thing sounded like so i would get it get it going with the tech and i would start recording with it and he would i give him finally got him to show me how to align it and stuff and i would start using yeah. it and then I think once he saw me excited about it and hooking stuff back up, he would get re-excited about it, you know? Okay. Um, so there wasn't really a guy, like, teaching you all that stuff. You just kind of, like, it was there, and you were, like, pulling it out of, of storage, basically, and kind of learning it for yourself? He would teach me some things, and some things that he didn't know I would get a tech in and then, you know, really watch the tech or whoever I could to teach me okay. stuff. And then, because it was Sun, we'd also have a lot of outside engineers and producers coming in that you would assist. And so getting them to show me things and stuff like that. Right. But yeah, it's never... I, I never wanted to be a, 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 a purist, because I think that there's no... You can make a record any any way possible, and it's all it all depends on the artist and the song and their vision, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if uh, Kendrick Lamar came in there, I wouldn't be like, "Well, no, you got to do this to my mono Ampex." <laughs> right, right. I'd be like, "However you want." That's do what it. I loved. Like I watched some of that Pure Mix thing that you did, and and like I really noticed that you know, you, yes, you're using you know some of the great analog processing and stuff, but you you're totally rocking the Pro Tools rig too. Like you're yeah. not messing around with that shit. <laughs> yeah, it, it, to me, it's they're all tools. They and they never works the same way twice. So I never, I never. Yeah. Try, uh, my biggest heroes are are like Willie Mitchell, Chips Moman, and Sam Phillips, and some of these guys. And they all kind of had a sound that they applied right. to all the artists. And that's the. It's funny because as much as I look up to them, that's the last thing I want to do. I would rather you be surprised that you saw me on the back of the thing than going mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, they definitely went there and he did that thing he does. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how long did you do that for? Like how long were you at Sun being like the staff engineer? I was at Sun. I started there at 16. Uh was the intern and then I became the second engineer and I think around 2010 I became the head engineer and then I left Oh my in, god. That's a that's a long time. Uh, yeah, I left Holy in shit. 2015. So I was there about 11 years or so. Wow. Okay. Um, what happened around that time? Did did it change ownership or anything, or did you just kind of get sick of doing that, or you wanted to do other things, or how did that happen? No, I mean, you know, the the great thing at Sun obviously is one of the greatest great studios of all time. Um, it is a museum, so it is a museum during the day. I was also the general man, uh, not the general man. I was, I think they said I was operations manager, but I was a manager too. So I would get there at nine a.m. And work till six as a 
as the museum, and then at 6.30 I would start recording till late at night. So wow. I was working really insane hours, and the thing about Sun is it's busy every day, recording yeah. recording and tourist-wise, you know? So, yeah. Um, and I really love that. I, I It's helped me n- since then now being able to not have a um, – as much as sometimes I'd like to have a routine or a schedule – it's been ingrained in my body for so long that, you know, this week you're not going to have dinner till 10, and tomorrow mm-hmm. you might have dinner at 5 p.m., and <laughs> you yeah. might not sleep for two weeks. So I, I'm really grateful for that because it's helped with, with other sessions. Uh, but um, uh, I have been kind of thinking about leaving for a while because it's one thing to work in just one room every day and um, – uh, be good, but I really wanted to push myself and see what I could do in other rooms. Also, I didn't want to be just known as the retro sun guy or something like that. Um, and, um, yeah, I just wanted to like, I I never want to get lazy or, or, or take stuff for granted. And so I think, and I thought about leaving for a while and just becoming an independent engineer. And that's when I had started to do a couple sessions outside of the studio. And then, um, what were the what were the first sessions you did outside of Sun? I uh, while while working at Sun, I went to I worked with the Sheepdogs, this great rock and roll band from Canada. I'm at, I'm Canadian, so I know I know those guys. Oh, perfect! Yeah, they're awesome, <laughs> yeah. and they came down and did like a and this is a great lesson I think for for up for people who want to get in the business that everything is an audition, whether you realize it or not. You know, they came in with the CB. Was it is it the CBC that that's like the yeah CBC. I remember when this happened, yeah. With uh, I forget the dang producer's name now. It's killing me. But they came with a producer, and they came in, and they were just doing a couple songs live to two-track. We went. I talked to them into going to live to two-track because they uh, – I forget why, but I was crazy at the time. And uh, <laughs> we did it, and they really loved the sound. They just loved hanging out and stuff. And so they asked me to come record their – what would be future nostalgia album. And we rented yeah. a barn in Peterborough. And nice. uh, made a made a on the in the field kind of record, and so I was up there for two weeks, and and that was um, the that was basically my two week vacation. I had it from working as a manager was going to work in Canada, so it was the best in, vacation in ever. Peterborough, no less. In Peterborough, yeah, <laughs> it was a it was a that record was amazing. We had a big barn that was yeah. I'm the, I remember they like when they rented it, they were like, "There's a lake." And there's all this stuff we can do. I'm like, I'm never going to get to see the lake. <laughs> I already know it's going to happen. And sure enough, yeah. I don't even think I walked down and ever looked at it. I was in the oh barn recording different people every day. But we had a, we rented one of those green egg smokers, and there was a butcher shop in town. So every day, whoever wasn't doing overdub would walk down and get a, some cut of meat and start smoking it or grilling it. And then we would have a big family dinner every night. It was It was really cool. Nice. Yeah, a good bunch of Saskatoon boys. Yeah, that was one thing. And then um, I uh, went down to uh, Fame with uh, Dave Cobb called me. We had a mutual friend, Mark Neal, and Dave was doing this great artist, Anderson East, for Spotify at Fame Yeah, and um, asked if I'd come engineer it. And that's when we were making that about an hour. So how did that connection happen? Like, did he, that was just out of the blue? You just got a call from Dave? Uh, Dave, Dave and I have a mutual friend, Mark Neal, who's a great producer. He did the Black Keys Brothers album and, and old yeah. 97s and stuff. And um, we were all friends with Mark. And, and I, Dave and I had met years ago at, uh, 
a, a recording conference in Nashville that we were both speaking at, but we just briefly had like at a after late night dinner thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I was a fan of his records, and and he said he had liked some stuff I've been doing out of out of Sun, and he wanted someone to come down there and and do the Fame session, and so he thought of me. So yeah, he called me to do this one day session at Fame. And a couple hours into it, it was going really good. He asked me to engineer Jason Isbell's what would be something more than free album. Yeah. Um, Great record. And so that, yeah, and that that was going to be like a whole month in February. I asked the Sun owners if I could if I could go do that album, and they were hesitant to have me gone that long as I was yeah. doing double duty there. And um, it was, I kind of tell told us before, but it was like the hardest and easiest decision at, in, at the same time because <laughs> right. A, I've been there a long time. I really love that studio um, yeah. and the history and sure. it it was a salary job in, in the music world, yeah. which is unheard of. But at the same time, I knew it, I, I would regret it forever if I didn't go do this album. So I actually quit my job. Um, okay. Told him I would leave. I You know, I didn't just leave the next day. I, I was a... Um, uh, I you know put in my two weeks. It was I put in my two months or whatever it was, <laughs> and yeah. I was happy to train, help whoever I could succeed after me there. Blah blah blah. Yeah. But yeah, I ended up leaving for that for that album. And you did that in Nashville, or was that done somewhere else? We did that in Nashville yeah, at Sound Emporium, which funny enough is the studio that Cowboy Jack Clement, who was an old Sun Studio engineer, started. It was called Jack's yeah. Tracks, and then Sun Records. Sam Phillips sold the record label in '69 to a guy named Shelby Singleton. And mm-hmm. so Sun Records is in Nashville, and it was next door. So I left Sun Studio to go work next door to Sun <laughs> Records. <laughs> that Sound Emporium is a really cool-sounding room. It's, so did did you find, like, was it hard for you after working for so long in one room to go into another room? Even a great room like Sound Emporium, it must be, like, a totally different experience for you. Was I, it I jarring learned, at all? Uh, definitely a little jarring. You know, I never was used to having an assistant. I was never used to having like a big studio. I mean, we, in town we have Ardent and stuff where I had done yeah. a couple things at, and I'd done some stuff at Royal. But like, you know, Sound Emporium is this big um, studio with several runners and assistants, and Dave's a yeah. big producer, and Jason's a big artist. And it's, I knew a lot of the, I knew some of the guys in the band beforehand. But yeah, it still was like, um, you know, I hadn't used any fancy mic. We didn't have fancy mics or gear at Sun. So now mm-hmm. there's all these new things to try out and hear. And, you know, I, I, the funny thing is at Sun, when I would get levels, I wouldn't go, hey, hit your kick drum, now hit your snare drum. Now hit your, I'd have to have everybody play together because it didn't really yeah. matter what the kick drum sounded like by itself because it's in <laughs> everything else. So yeah. I'd have everybody. That's a great t- lesson to learn, actually, though, isn't it? Well, it's funny because in Nashville, you get all this, you check everything the day before, and mm-hmm. then you sit and you make all these decisions kind of on stuff before you hear everybody in the room together. Um, just to, and I, I mean, I appreciate it. You, you get your levels and you're all prepared and ready to go. But I was kind of hesitant to, to make decisions till I heard everybody play together, you know? And, yeah. And, um, and I think that was a lot different for them sometimes to understand. But in and in, in, in on that session, we had stuff baffled off, so it didn't matter so much. But, yeah, I'm, I was so used to, like, I don't know what the EQ the guitar till I hear what it's doing with the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, of course, yeah. So how, how was that for you working with a, a – produ- like, I know that you produce your own stuff and um, – 
sometimes you just engineer, like what's the dynamic like when you work with somebody like Dave Cobb, as far as, you know, how simpatico are you guys? It seems like you guys aesthetically are on the same page. So it was probably pretty easy, but, uh, is there a lot of sort of going back and forth about sonically what you're after on a record like that? Uh, I love working with anybody and everybody like a uh, Steve Berlin, who I saw you talk to too. We did, uh, he produced a thing I engineered on the blind boys, of Alabama, and stuff. So I love working with other producers and engineers because I never, like I said, I never want to get into a routine or just, uh, I always love learning new things or seeing how yeah. other people approach things in their way. Cause you, it's just amazing how many, you know, how everybody attacks stuff or just hears things. One of my favorite things is like having the client in the room when you mix or whatever and just hearing how they hear something, it makes me hear right. something different. So I, I, I get inspired by all that. So uh-huh. working with Dave was great. Dave is, um, you know, uh, I would have been fired pretty quickly if they were just wanting someone to copy and paste stuff to a click track and slide right. drums around and auto-tune. I'm not good at that stuff, or I'm not fast at that stuff. And I, and I really don't... I I'll do anything that a song needs, but that's not something that I super look forward to. Yeah. Um, uh, Dave <laughs> likes to record everybody live in the room and is very organic, and he'll let me fire up the tape machine, or he'll want to fire up the tape machine and stuff. So, mm-hmm. working with Dave was great. Dave is very hands on. So, like those two Isbel records we did is, you know, Dave is really uh, one thing I love about him. He's got amazing ears, and he he knows how gear sounds like specific and at that time I didn't because I'd only worked in sun so much you know so he'd be like so you you were like learning a lot of that gear like on the on the fly yeah they had an EVR which I knew from Arden a little bit but actually Dave wanted to skip the yeah. EVR so I showed him Dave had brought in racks of his gear you know yeah. and um but, but but he like I said he's a very hands-on producer so he'd be like well, let's do the drums through the knees I want to hear the bass through the blah 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 and so you yeah. you know you get that all going and then he'll he'll reach over and be grabbing EQs while you're pulling stuff up so that that okay. stuff doesn't bother me at all I'm not precious about like hold on I'm engineering you know so it was fun to tag team and stuff and then when he's producing he's usually in there like he plays guitar and stuff right yeah. like acoustic yeah. guitar or whatever so you're kind of left alone in the control room I'm all all alone <laughs> <laughs> and are those those records are probably done like fairly quickly or are they pretty oh, yeah. experimental or yeah even I mean we still experiment pretty much but yeah it's it's getting two two or three songs a day and then working real yeah. fast and I know that he he sort of talks about how he liked to work without headphones and stuff did you do those Isbel records like in the room with without headphones, is that really? Uh, no, they had headphones. They um, okay. um, used headphones on that session, but um, a lot of times it's a um, it's not a bunch of more me's. You know, you give everyone up. Yeah. At Sam Phillips, where I'm at now, um, yeah, I, at Sun, I did almost most of the sessions without headphones. Uh, I would have a little Altec speaker kind of set up in because if you if you're playing too loud in that room, everything's screwed anyway. So so playing without right. headphones and having a speaker really helped control the volume in the room and also make people play differently. Uh, like yeah. Margot's Midwest Farmer's Daughter album was done without headphones. And then at the new Sam Phillips studio, they have an old school headphone system where everyone shares the same two mix and you don't even get to control your volume. You share all share oh, the really? same volume. Yeah. And wow. it's it's kind of amazing. It's really amazing. No one ever complains about it. No one's like 
fiddling with stuff in between songs, you know. You know what everyone's getting because it's what right. I'm hearing in the control room. It makes yeah. me work better because I'm I'm sitting there writing the faders as they're listening so they make sure everyone gets the solo feels pop up and the vocal feels popped up. And then I really cool. learn all the moves I want to do in the song and know the overdubs I need to do while yeah. I'm tracking because I'm so focused on that, you know. Um but uh, but yeah, the, a lot of the so a lot of the Jason stuff would be like everyone shares the same two mix or whatever. So it's kind of like in a sense, it's like playing without headphones because they can't just turn themselves up. But, right. But yeah, right. a lot of that stuff was with headphones. Interesting. So that Margot Price record that you mentioned. Um, so how did that come about? Because she. So at that point, that's. I don't know if that's her first record, but that's the first record that I ever heard of. That, yeah, she um, had another band, but that was the first record as Margot Price. So the, again, everything's an audition. They, uh, <laughs> at the studio, we would get calls, you know, about recording and I was as flexible. I would record you at any time, anywhere, uh, yeah. we could. And she just called up the studio and they were driving back from South by Southwest and they wanted to record for two hours, but they couldn't get there till like 1130 at night or something. I was like, let's do it. I'm ready to go. So we recorded and she came oh, so in. That was, at, that was at Sun. That was at Sun. Yeah, that's when I was still the engineer there. Uh, and uh, I got, the, they were cool with going to my one inch eight track. And so we recorded the eight track, and I was just blown away by her. I just thought she was incredible. And, yeah. um, and uh, we didn't get much done that night. They were kind of tired from the drive, and, and they were, they, she didn't have the band that she has now. There was a, it was close to it, but not it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just kind of, we came, we became really, quickly became fast friends in two hours, me and her husband, Jeremy. And um, mm-hmm. we kind of kept in touch. And I just told him, I said, if you ever want to come back and record, you know, I can make it, uh, you know, I can't do it for free because I-, I would do me for free, but I can't, the studio, I have to, you know, get blah, blah, blah. But I said, so I'll make it as as cheap as I possibly can for whatever you want to do. And so she called back about a couple months later and said she's ready to book three days and do an album. So that's when we did Midwest Farmer's Daughter, and we recorded. And that record was pr- was probably done like on a shoestring, right? Because it wasn't. Yeah, she, she ended actually, up licensing it to Third Man. Like she probably didn't really have a budget, or yeah, I basically just did it. The studio just got whatever the the cheapest I could get the owner to go on the studio, and then she turned out they pawned her wedding ring and sold one of her cars to fund the band and the the uh, roomie and stuff. Um, Classic, but 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 put her on it, and we and we cut the whole thing in three days, starting at six o'clock at night, and uh, and uh, I think all at sun, yeah, all at sun, and then we uh, they did a couple overdubs back home after they left, like small things like percussion and stuff, and then I mixed it. I had we we tracked it, and then I think by the time we mixed it, it was several months later, and I had actually left Sun by that time, and so okay. I mixed it at Ardent Studio B. Um, yeah. And then and then Jack White and them picked it up, which was amazing. So that was done without headphones. Does does she like as a singer? Was that a is that a struggle? I know, like I I've had certain experiences doing headphoneless recordings where for some singers like it's really a challenge because they just can't get that thing that they want to feel from either from headphones or from a monitor that they get from a live gig. Yeah. Uh, but she, she has a pretty powerful voice. So she has a powerful voice. And like if she had any trouble, we always start without the headphones. And sometimes it's a song by song basis. You know, if they need the headphones, yeah. I, I will go immediately out there and 
put on there. Like I said, I'm not not forcing anyone into some weird way of recording that they don't like. So it's kind of finding their right. level of. But once you once you got the Altec speaker right, and in that room, just being in sun, I can't describe it. But it's like um that room. So the was, Altex, you're treating it like a like a vocal monitor. It's like a speaker coming back at the singer. Yeah, and it also fe- gives energy to the other stuff in the room. You know, so okay. Yeah. Um, uh. She was typically pretty happy with that when we, and we would just go. Um, right if on. there's a song, I can't remember if there's a song that we, I think maybe four years of chances or, or one song where we were up in the ante a little bit. We went to a headphone, I think, but um, yeah. for, for them. But, um, but that so re- she would have done all her vocals live off the floor pretty much with the band. Yeah, I think she, she punched a couple things later. Uh, but yeah, like, uh, if you hurting on a bottle, that's like take i think we did two takes and both takes we i thought take one was it but the pedal steel player didn't like his solo so we did take two <laughs> and then i can't remember if we went which one we went with but both takes were phenomenal she's just a a killer singer just incredible yeah. what about uh the the prine album since we were talking about the dave cobb connection um so you guys did that great john prine record a few years back what was that what was working with him like um amazing so john recorded Pink Cadillac at Sam Phillips, a studio. I, I'm oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. And uh, Margot and Jeremy had kind of, we had done Margot and Jeremy's second album, uh, All American Made, at Sam Phillips. And they became friends with Prine after that. And then I knew, I never had met John, but I was friends with, obviously, the Phillips family and Keith Sykes and some of his his other friends. And um, Margot and Jeremy had told him about Phillips and me, I guess, down here, because the first day at... Uh, meeting John at the studio, I said, John, I, uh, uh, I work down at Sam Phillips Recording Service. Uh, Jerry told me to tell you, hey, and, and you know, we're uh, love for you to come seating as it hasn't changed or something. He goes, yeah, Margo and Jeremy told me I got to meet a guy down there who recorded their album. I goes, well, I think that was me. <laughs> he's like, oh, man. And he's like called his wife over. He's like, this is the guy down at Phillips or whatever. And and so it was just an amazing, he just, he just, he's, uh one of a kind. He, him, and Fiona and his sons, and fam- they're just like they emanate nothing but love. They immediately welcome you in, like you're a second cousin coming, <laughs> coming for Thanksgiving, and and that was just a one of the greatest two weeks of my life was was with the, spending with them every day working on that. Uh, and, and that was done at Dave Cobb's place. That was now, done at right? RCAA, like, yeah. And then yeah. after that album, John and his family came down and visited Sam Phillips, and he actually cried seeing the studio because it hasn't changed oh, since he recorded there. And that that album meant so much to him. So we had a great time hanging out for the day uh, yep. in the studio. Beautiful. And th- so that record at that you did at RCA, it, that that's a gigantic room. I can't believe how huge it is um i mean i know there's bigger rooms but you know i'm not used to working in rooms that big um was that a struggle at all like just dealing with acoustic instruments and and voices and stuff in a room that big or is the room just so amazing no what's funny about it is we just put everyone in a circle there everyone was probably three feet from each other in a big circle i've seen pictures of the session so yeah Yeah. i kind of knew that yeah Yeah. i've never actually dave really likes it kind of like that in that room so i've never like really spread things too far out in those in that room but yeah it's 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 a massive massive room but it just sounds so good in there you know that's yeah sun uh sun rcaa rcab motown they were built to before headphones were around so there's 
a lot of the acoustics, like when you see the horizontal slats, is to reflect or soften sound depending on if an artist is sitting down or standing up. They, they thought about that stuff in advance yeah. to help sound travel and so you could hear everything naturally in the room without headphones or anything. Because bef- right. some of those rooms were built before headphones were around. Yeah, so yeah. like that's some of the best rooms to record acoustic material in. Interesting. And John doesn't strike me as somebody who would want to sit there doing a song over and over again. Is that is it all pretty much like first, second, third takes kind of thing? Uh, he would get them fast for sure, but there was a song or two that he, uh, the song didn't make the album, but he sang it several, several times to try and get the feeling right. So he would he would do as oh. many times as Dave asked him to. Um, yeah. But, you know, but often those guys are so good it didn't take but one to three takes to get it. Can you give me a quick rundown of the Sam Phillips studio situation versus the Sun? So, so he left Sun in, in what year? So Sam started us. Uh, you're going to get a long-winded answer. I hope it was okay. <laughs> uh, Sam, Sam started Sun in 1950. He had basically no money. He rented the space. He built the acoustics in there. It, it was a three-room building. He didn't even have an office. Um, and he had uh, two kids, a deaf mute aunt and a wife he was taking care of. And mm-hmm. he had a pre- he had a prestigious job at the at the Peabody recording big band music in for WREC radio station. Oh. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the ballroom. Oh, cool. And he left that job to start the studio. And, and it's, um, I think a lot of people not super familiar with it just think he was a lucky kind of hillbilly guy that stumbled upon Elvis Presley. But but Sam grew up in Alabama, kind of a sharecropper son, and immediately loved radio, became, well, first he wanted to be a, a civil rights lawyer almost, but but then he, um, like to kill a mockingbird or something, you know, but uh, he quickly became, fell in love with radio, and he went to Nashville for a while, then he came to Memphis, and he he came through Memphis as a kid on the way to, I think, a Bible camp or something, and he said they drove past Beale Street at, at like four in the morning, and Beale <laughs> Street, Memphis is so much different than any other southern town. Uh, Memphis has a much larger, um, diverse population, and we had yeah. the blues, and we had uh, all this other stuff happening, uh, rock and roll before it was called rock and roll. And um, Beale Street, whites weren't allowed on Beale Street. Beale Street was oh. like kind of like, I hate to use the word Vegas, but it was basically a retreat that any uh, African-American anywhere around could come and go to. And there was clubs, there was drinking, there was, I'm sure there was, you know, pro- prostitute, whatever you wanted to do. <laughs> 
You yeah. can go on Bill Street, and they, it's like probably the one of the few times they could let their hair down, so to right. speak, and relax and not worry about um, all the segregation and all the racism outside and all the other hardships of life. And Sam drove by Beale Street and saw this and was immediately intrigued by it. And then when he moved here, he was recording all the big band music. The Peabody is not too far from Beale Street, and he was hearing, yep. I mean, at that time you could hear Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, Ike Turner, Amazing. you know, Joe Cotton, Lil Walter, all this stuff. So that was emanating down the street, and that's all he could could focus on. That was what was speaking to him was this black music, and no one was recording it. No one was appreciating it in as far as whites go. So he left this prestigious job to start a studio to record you know, predominantly black music in the 50s. So it was not a, uh, m- this was not a quick money-making scheme or anything. This was just doing what his soul was telling him to do. Mm-hmm. And so he started recording all these great black artists, and he was selling the master's licenses to chess or RPM. But then they they eventually were starting having big hits with it, and he was only getting the one-time fee, and they wouldn't appreciate some of the real raw stuff he would send. So he decided to start his own record label. And that was, yeah. so the studio was called Memphis Recording Service. And the record label was called Sun Records. He started Sun Records in 52. It was not a um, uh, success at all for several years. Uh, he actually put out a, he had a hit with uh, Rufus Thomas called um, Bearcat. It was a ripoff of Hound Dog. But back then, blues artists would all the time take a song. It was called an answer sure. song. It was quite popular. But Sam was the first one to get sued for it. <laughs> yeah, he got sued and it almost financially destroyed him. And then um, oh, man. he discovered Elvis and uh, by 53, you know, Elvis had come in there and recorded and, you know, he famously sold Elvis's contract a year and a half later to RCA for $30,000. And he mm. said he never regretted that decision. You know, his dream was to bring black music to make it universal, to not make it just, they were calling them race records or whatever, but he wanted everyone to listen to black music. And so that was his dream. His dream wasn't just Elvis. Elvis was someone who came along and helped facilitate that dream because mm-hmm. he made it acceptable for white kids to listen to. Get, you know, he was the gateway drug into Howlin' Wolf yeah. or whatever. Uh, but selling Elvis's contract, that $30,000, that was a lot of money at the time. It was the highest paid for country and Western artist by that point. And that money helped, get the debts from the lawsuit and fix stuff mm-hmm. up around the studio and 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 allow him to get international distribution and stuff because he had only had local distribution with the record. So it really oh, saved okay. the label. And yeah. so then Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, uh, Conway Twitty, all these guys come through the door. And then they have those hits, you know. And yeah. uh, Elvis was only a regional success on Sun. He sells the contract to RCA. RCA puts out Heartbreak Hotel, which to Sam is a horrible record. It's it's sad. It sounds bad. Didn't have yeah. it. They couldn't figure out how to do his echo, so they put the voice in the hallway. And then Sam puts out Blue Suede Shoes, and it's the first record to be top 10 on all three charts. So RCA Amazing. for a while thought they signed the wrong guy, you know? <laughs> but Sam had all this success, and so by 57, he had made a million dollars. There was a little uh, local newspaper article saying he made, Sam Phillips made a million dollars without an office or something. But <laughs> but if you got you also got to think, technologically speaking, when Sam started, he didn't have magnetic tape. He was recording direct to disc. By 51, Amazing. 52, he had a single track Ampex. Um, but by 58, 
you know, they have, they're starting to get into three track. They're starting to get echo chambers. There's plate reverb. There's all these things coming out, condenser microphones. So he really wanted to expand his business and his sound. So he started building his dream studio one block, one street down, three blocks down, and that's Sam Phillips recording service. So he started building it about 57, 58. It officially opened in 1960. It's unchanged. I'm in Studio B where right now, but it's still the same paint, still the same shag carpet everywhere. And it's wow. really an amazing room. Uh, Sam spared no expense. He spent $800,000 in 1958 money. Which Holy is shit. A, absolutely. And it was, it was probably the most futurist high-tech studio, I think, till for a long, long time. I mean, other people have, there's been trends in audio, but he built a room that sounds beautiful when you're in it. He designed these doors. You can see these doors. Uh, they open and close, and you can make the room more reflective or more absorptive by closing the door, oh, cool. opening the door. Um, he had uh, two studios, two lathe rooms. There was several offices. There's three echo chambers, and then a penthouse suite with a bar in his office. And his <laughs> office has a built-in jukebox in the desk. I mean, just incredible studio. And uh, that's where um, he, he moved, officially moved to in 1960. Uh, Wooly Bully was cut here. The Yardbirds did Train Kept a Rolling and a couple other songs Sweet. in here. The Cramps cut in here. Mr. Bojangles, Third Rate Romance was cut in there. Um, some of Shotgun Willie was cut in here. Um, John Prine did Pink Cadillac. Alex Chilton did Flies Like Sherbert. Um, uh, Phil Collins did a record with uh, Robert Plant in the 80s at some point. Just a, mm-hmm. a lot of crazy records were cut in here. Was it always called Sam Phillips? Re- yeah, Sam Phillips Recording Service, yeah. And so how did, how did it come about that you ended up there? Just through the Sun Connection or like what what's the story? Uh, I was friends with the Phillips family by Sun. You know, they never, so Sam never owned the building of Sun. He, he rented that room for nine years and he moved to Sam Phillips. And so he okay. moved, the record label moved, but the studio stayed there. And later it was a barber shop and it was a scuba shop. And then now it's a right. studio again. Um, but the Phillips family would come in quite a bit. And I, you know, I always looked up to them. They like, I never got to meet Sam. Sam died in 2003. I started working at Sun in 2004. But his sons, Jerry and Knox, would come in, and they have that, you know, if Sam was Yoda, uh, Jerry and Knox would be like Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, they still have that. (laughs) They still have the the force with them. And um, and, uh, so they have this thing about them when they come into a room, and they're just such amazing people. And so I got to be friends with them. And Roland Janes was the engineer of Phillips for a long time, and he was the guitar player on all the 50s, like, Jerry Lee Sun stuff. He really was one of the oh, first wow. rock and roll guitar players. He's the first guy to have a Stratocaster in Memphis. He did the out-of-phase pickup thing. And mm-hmm. he really was those early uh, licks you hear on Billy Lee Riley and Jerry Lee. That's Roland. So he okay. really changed guitar playing, and now he was an engineer at Phillips. So you go over there just to see Roland. And um, and it was kind of like a rite of passage thing. So I would walk down and hail Roland a little bit. And then he passed away in 2015, right as I was going independent. And so I needed a place to kind of move my gear and be have a home base. So I s- talked to the Phillips family, and they weren't sure what to do. So I, I moved into Phillips and was booking, bringing clients into A. And then I turned the B room into like a little mix room because my buddy Jeff Powell came over also too from Ardent. 
and he cuts vinyl records. So he moved his Neumann mm-hmm. lathe over, and he cuts records in the Studio B control room, and I mix in the Studio wow. B tracking room. So the Phillips family still owns it, and you just yeah. rent it from them? Is that yeah, what happens? Yeah, the Phillips family owns it. I just rent the B room from them. Um, um, okay. I'm, I'm actually stupidly building, uh, uh, excitingly and stupidly building a studio now, <laughs> so I'll be leaving soon. From, okay. from I'll still track an A when projects we, we when it's right to, but I won't be renting the B room uh, very much longer. But yeah, I I rent the B room and mix in there. But I book I book their A room from them when I want a track or something. So what's the what's the story with the place that you're building? Is it right in Memphis and and like what kind of what's the what's the layout of it? This uh, um, really amazing thing happened. I worked with this artist uh, John Kilzer, and he was an amazing man. He was a Big basketball player, super tall uh, guy in college, and then he became a—he was a great singer-songwriter in the '80s. He was going to be like the next big thing. He was signed to Geffen. He mm-hmm. put out this amazing record, and he unfortunately had some bad luck in the music business, and also he had alcohol and drug issues. And he uh, never quit doing music, but he became a recovery minister. And I—he's okay. done several records, and all of them are just phenomenal. And I finally got to work with him. On his last record, it's this record called Scars. And at the time we were working on it, we knew we were, you know, you you knew he was special and the songs were special. And we became close as you do in recording. And he kept telling me, you got to go over to this Crosstown place. And I'd heard about it, but I just had never gone. And he's like, I want you to come over there and meet the folks there. And just, it's a studio. Uh, no, it's just um, it's a. It was in the fifties. It was built in nineteen oh six. It's a million and a half square foot Art Deco concrete massive building. It was a Sears distribution center. Wow. And wow. so it had Sears, but it was also where they you know just distribute all their stuff around town. There, there's one in L A. I think there's one in. There was one in New York, and there's some of them are still around because they're these massive concrete buildings you can't a million square get rid of. Feet. Yeah, it's, I can't even conceive of how big that is. I think it's actually a million and a half or something crazy. But uh, but it was empty after I for I forget when it became like abandoned. But at some point, like in the '80s or something, this building was emptied, and it's just been kind of a a sore spot in this midtown Memphis. You know, this big because they know no one knew what to do with it. It was too expensive to tear it down. And this amazing guys came in there and turned it into this creative cultural center. Wow. So they fixed it all up. They redid the plumbing, the HVAC, the electricity. And now you go in there and the top three levels are apartments. There's um, four or five restaurants. There's uh, all these local businesses. There's a radio station out of the bottom floor now. There's a 500-seat music theater venue in the back. There's um, a green room, which is kind of like a songwriter's, like a bluebird kind of room. There's a bar. There's... um, a high school in there. I mean, it's just the most amazing thing. St. Jude's got offices there. There's a brewery. Um, and so it's this amazing place of all these creative people. And they put in a couple of rooms of Pro Tools, computers, Photoshop computers, um, video editing software. There's a big woodworking lay. There's a huge expensive 3D and photo printers in there. And for like $80 a month, you can go in there and use any of that stuff as much as you want. Wow. So you you get all these people in there doing all this amazing uh, stuff. And um, uh, so I, I worked with John Kilzer. He got me to go meet the folks over there. And they had some space 
there's only there's like ten thousand square feet of space left in the building that they weren't sure what to do with, and they wanted to do something very cool with it. And um, I met them, and and kind of like when I was thinking about leaving Sun, I was. I've always had the dream of having my own studio, you know, mm-hmm. and I've been at Phillips a long time and I would work in A, but I've kind of accumulated all this funky gear and I have a, I have a way of how I think sound should be and acoustic should be now. I've kind of, after hearing all these different studios, so I would always kind of looking at maybe finding my own space and I met, and John made me meet these guys, this is the right time. And then unfortunately John had some, uh, always had the, the he'd been sober for a long time, but you know the demons are still there, and he yeah. uh, killed. Unfortunately, he killed himself just after our album came out, and um, oh. it was a big heavy blow. And it brought me and the guys at Crosstown even closer together because of our mutual friend John, who had put us together. So mm-hmm. it was this weird kind of spiritual things all lining up. But um, I ended up uh, kind of dreaming with them about this space for a while, and then. Uh, I decided to do it, and so we 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 I've, I'm renting about three thousand square feet and building a studio inside that space. And then the another thing that happened that's amazing is um, John King, who is one of the founders of Ardent and just kind of a, a silent partner. He has one of the world's biggest vinyl collections. It's worth over a million dollars. It's over a hundred thousand <laughs> records. He collected oh, basically every top top like 10 or 20 records since the 60s he's collected wow. them and um he's getting up there in age and he was trying to donate them to like a college and they weren't interested in taking the catalog without I, f- I forget what else they wanted so the guys at crosstown took this catalog on and jim thompson who's become a dear friend of mine he owns eggleston speaker works and, and they're a memphis company that makes incredible hi-fi speakers he's donating a pair of like eighty thousand dollar uh, audiophile speakers to the space. So uh, when you go up to the second floor across town, uh, down this hallway, there'll be about a, f- I think it's a 4,500 square foot vinyl library open to the public. Wow. And okay. we've gotten other we've gotten other labels and stuff to donate records. So you'll go in there and we'll have a guy obviously curating it. So you can't just pull the rare, right? Uh, right. the rarest blues 78 off the shelf. But you can bring in records. You can pull one off the shelf. There, there are ten to twelve turntables with headphones that you can listen privately. There's a sample room, so if you want to sample a drum groove off this rare record for your song, there's that. And then there's a, a listening room that'll seat about wow. fifty people with these speakers with a big view outside of Memphis. <laughs> and and I'm side by side with that. So all these things have lined up. And it's just what I'd hoped for because I feed off of other people. I, I hate being sure, in a room sure. by myself. And so this to have a million and a half square foot building with with artists and photographers and writers That's crazy. and stuff. And now there's a radio station. So uh, I've I really thought this that Memphis de- 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 uh, definitely didn't need another studio, but the the having this as the place for it, as you know. I'm I'm jumping all around here, so I apologize. But you know, when when you got people in the studio, they sometimes they need to get out, but they can't feel they feel like they can't leave because they might have to go do a tambourine real quick or something. Right. Well, they can they can leave my door of the studio, and they literally have a million square feet. They can go get a coffee, go sit yeah. outside, get a book without ever leave without leaving the studio, so to speak. Um, wow. So and they can live upstairs, and then they can come play a show at the theater, then come record, and then there's a radio station down there, and there's all this 
amazing kind of charity stuff that we all donate our our time to for Crosstown, that for the school or for St. Yep. Jude or whatever. And so I feel like it's one of these. It could be like the most classy, feel good cruise ship all inclusive <laughs> <laughs> thing because you can come in and do this stuff. So it it really turned out well. And and to have this vinyl library side by side, it's like. What better way to go start a session than go in there and listen to your favorite record on these speakers that you've never heard it before and remember what you love about music, then go make music, and then we can go play it on the radio or talk about it, and then you go play a show for people. I just think it could get, be— That get wired on, on some artisanal coffee. Yeah, exactly. Get your <laughs> get your your organic free-range beans. and. So you had a basically like a blank slate to create your own space then? Uh, uh, somewhat. I mean, obviously there's financial— uh, slates, and then the, the yeah, it's an yeah. old uh, Sears building. So every seventeen foot is a three foot thick concrete column. So wow, okay, working around those columns. At first, I was annoyed by it, but I wanted to hide some of them. Um, mm-hmm. But you can't do that, so to speak. But then it became amazing because we have this control room, and I, sight lines is a big thing for me. So mm-hmm. the tracking room kind of curls around the control room window a little bit. So it's oh. a the tracking room is thirty five feet wide, twenty three feet deep, but it curls, so you only feel like you're like within twelve foot of somebody at all times. And right. how you that's not gigantic. Your, it's a nice. That's a nice size. It's a nice size, yeah. And then this one column right in the middle, it's concrete and smooth. And it's circular, so sound will bounce off of that randomly every time. There's no way to calculate it. So hmm. we have one of those in the main room. Then all the other concrete columns are kind of half moon shaped throughout. Um, but yeah, I designed a long hallway with them too, and they help break out the sound as like a big chamber. So I'm really excited to see how it will turn out. And when is that all going to be up and running? Uh, we uh, they're moving fast now. We're we're hoping to start running pulling cable and installing the patch bays and stuff in April or, or late okay. late April. And I'll probably be actually getting sounds then or May. Um, yeah. So quickly. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's been a long, it's been in the cards for a long time. I haven't really, okay. uh, I didn't feel like posting about it in 2020 because uh, we all had so much horrible stuff happening to us <laughs> in 2020 and be like, well, I'm <laughs> building a studio. <laughs> Look at me. So I, I waited yeah. I waited till 2021 with all the feel. It feels like the the clouds had lifted some, even though we're so, somewhat still in, in 2020 in so many ways. But yeah, um, are is it going to be a commercial space or is it just like your space for doing your projects? I kind of view it uh, as both. You know, I travel mm-hmm. a lot for work. Uh, I love recording in other towns and other places, so I I've, I don't want it to just be shut out to anybody and everybody. But I I will be somewhat picky about who gets to go in there while I'm not in there because there's a lot of yeah. historic stuff, and and I just don't want stuff to get beat up and certain things. Right. But no, I, I haven't fully. I say that now, and then when I can't pay the rent, I'll be trying to get anybody, anybody there. But <laughs> you mentioned some of the equipment, and and we don't really like focus on gear on this podcast. But like, what are the centerpiece things for you? Like, you must have a console that you love and that you're used to working on, or what's your general centerpiece bits of equipment? It's funny. I, I'm sure with you too. Like, you know, we we're talking about our, the microphones we're talking on for this podcast. But like, <laughs> I absolutely love gear, and at the same time, I. I'm not picky about it because I know that 
the cheapest thing in that room in that studio that I'm go, going to work at. Like I, I can't bring my console, but I'll use there. And that thing will be, that funky thing will get the sound that I couldn't have gotten yeah. well in the nice gear. So I always love hearing new stuff. And like I said, I, I never want the records to all sound the same. So yeah, I love working on different pieces. But I, I have um, uh, a Spectrosonics console from 1969 that was made oh, in cool. Memphis, and it was one of five made. And then I also several years ago acquired the original Ardent Desk. Uh, John had sold it in the 70s, and it's the record that Big Star did their first two records on. Um, Isaac Hayes' Hot Buttered Soul, I believe, was mixed on it and tracked on it. Is it a Spectra as well? Yeah, it's an early Spectra. It was made in Memphis under under the company Autotronics, but it was all Spectrasonics parts. And that that console was the sister console to the Stax board because... um, John thought if I got the same console that Stax has and the same A-Track, when they start getting busy, I'll get their overflow work. And that's how Harden <laughs> really start, started getting busy at the beginning. So the board's getting – it's been getting worked on for several years. It it had a lot of just like uh, – over the years, a lot of – it's it was all there, but it had some issues. So we're I wanted to get it completely overhauled because it's going to be the centerpiece at the new room. So the, How big is it? It's not big. It's only twelve channels. It's a oh wow okay twelve by four. But I've I've stupidly have added automated faders to the below it. It has those old nice. Altec slide faders, which I kept for the mic pre to tape in. But I have automated faders now because I love to mix as I go. Um, yeah, I try to mix as as we're tracking, and so I want to be able to save the mix and save the moment, and then come back. I to love it. the automation too. I've got I've got that on my board. Yeah, it's key. It's a, it's. It is good, yeah. What's the general deal with the Spectra stuff? Like, I, I know it's sort of known for, like, being able to kind of deal with really fast transients and stuff like that. Is it is it a really unique-sounding console? You know, it it you're going through transformers, and you're going... So it, it will color. It distorts amazingly. It's got, like, a very musical tube, almost the kind of saturation. But what I love about it is my console... Um, and I'm not a super technical person, but... How many times have you like you go out and you put a mic on the kick drum and you're like, okay, even with your ear, you go, this is what the kick drum sounds like. Then you go yeah. back into the room and you pull up the fader and you go, okay, that doesn't sound like what I just heard out there. <laughs> and you're debating: is the microphone? Is it the? Is a bad cable? Is it the con- console? Yeah. And Jim Dickinson, you know, used to say like, you know, why records don't sound good anymore? They're going through all this bullshit, you know. And <laughs> the Spectra boards are all discrete. The ones I have are all discrete, so no ICs. Uh, and they have four capacitors in every channel. So okay. it's literally the shortest signal path I've found. Wow. Um, it just, it, there's it's not going through anything negative. It's going through four capacitors. It's going through two transformers and an inductor EQ. Um, yeah. And it just sounds like what I heard out there. Like I go out and hear the kick drum, I come back in and I hear it, and then if I want to distort it, it distorts beautifully. Yeah. That's not saying that's the end-all be-all for me because I, I just worked in Nashville on a Sphere console that I've worked on twice, and that thing blows me away Really? with how, with how fuzzy it is. It's a uh-huh. great kind of fuzz. So it's not always the thing that works, but it, yeah, I just um, I just love it. It's it was all a lot of my favorite records were cut on it. and It's just a real musical board to me. Um, cool, and they're they're making equipment again. Yeah, I'm friends with the owners, so they never really shut down, and they yeah they still make equipment. They're great guys. They still, I mean, I don't know any other company that I can send my power supplies or my channel to from 1969, and they still make the parts to fix them. <laughs> 
uh, <laughs> That's you know, amazing. It's, it's pretty incredible uh, that they still do that stuff, and they haven't uh, uh, fussed with the design too much. Are you still taking on a lot of projects that you mix where you did where you had nothing to do with the tracking of? Absolutely, I know you've done that yeah. a lot in the past. Yeah, how that works for you? Like, do you ever get stuff that uh, is so far from what you would have done that you don't know how to deal with it or anything, or is it generally a positive experience? Well, uh, well, I think uh, Steve, I start every mix project. Uh, even the ones I've tracked, like I'm ruining this. Why? Why am I? Why would you ever <laughs> hire me to do this? Uh, and it, it's, you know, um, I, I have to. Li- I'm, I'm when I'm mixing, I'm looking for the emotion, uh, and, mm-hmm. and and I'm a sensitive person. So like I, I will sit there and I'll listen to all the music, and then I'll listen. Uh, you know, because I feel like you always come to it. If and when you're in the mixture, you come to it technically first. So you go like, oh, okay, the drums sound phasey. Okay, their bass sounds. I gotta denoise that bass. Uh, the vocal, I, I can make it brighter. But shutting all that down, after I, I gotta go back and listen to it several times. And instead of just starting to grab stuff, I listen for the intent of the music and stuff. And I, I always try and get them to sit with me. I even make it cheaper if they'll come sit with me on like the last two days. That, oh, what really? I usually do yeah. is I'll, I'll say, give me two or three days. it saves day. you having to recall and stuff, I guess? Well, e- not even that, but like um, what I feel like happens in today's world, and this could be me projecting my own my own insecurities and my issues, but um, I feel like today you you mix something and you get to where it feels great, but it never feels like, I'm done with it. This is it. And then, because you mix and you're like, I gotta, I should just send this before I do anything crazy because I got to hear if I'm on the right track or not. Right. Because you never know with people sometimes, especially when you haven't worked on any of it. So you, what ends up happening is you send a track that's like maybe 80, 80%, 85% there. Then they come back to you with notes, whether their notes are, that's amazing. I think it's done or just turn the bass up or I think it needs to be complete, blah, blah, blah. You... You never go back and go, oh, cool, they like it. Now let me try all this crazy stuff. You end up just right. kind of doing the little notes, doing a couple things and printing it. And so what I always ask them to do is give me like three days to go through all the tracks. I I organize them how I would do them. I put them on the board, find the the, the equipment and the things I like for the sounds, do some rough things. I, I, I'm like uh, like you. I, I ride the faders more than I compress or EQ. It's all about making stuff move. So I get mm-hmm. a lot of that out of the way. Then I ask them to come sit for two days, and I'll play it for them. And as you know, it's this weird thing that happens when you play a song for somebody else all of a sudden you hear it differently, you know, like, yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've tracked something, mixed something like this is killer. Then you're like, Hey, come listen to the song. And you're like, Oh my God, the intro is too long. Nothing happens. <laughs> I need to fade it out faster. The chorus it is a different popping. perspective. The vocal's not loud enough. It's a whole new yeah. world. just when someone sits in the room. So I love having the client come down and just, I'll hit play form and I'll immediately hear like, so differently and all these little things I could do, you know, and transitions or stuff. And I love just go, Hey, I hear this sounding like an old eight millimeter film here, but then we, we go stereo on the, or whatever it, mm-hmm. it, it, all that stuff just immediately comes by just their presence that right. doesn't happen over emails, you know? And so yeah. in those two days we can tweak 12 songs and do all these little magical things to me that when I leave it, I'm like, that mix is, I love it. You know, Slamming. and they love yeah. it. And if they go home and they listen on speakers they're familiar with and they want to recall, I have no problem doing because I know we've 
we've really gotten somewhere. So I always try and get them in here. Um, but I love mixing stuff that other people have recorded. It does take me sometimes longer than stuff I've done because I make so many decisions as right. we go. But yeah. I love it because it's stuff that I didn't record. So I'm, I'm, I have, to, it's like different EQ points I gotta, I'm looking for. Like I'm not, because I know what this room yeah. does to certain things. And, and then like, you know, they may, I get some stuff that's really modern that like the echo chamber here is beautiful. Uh-huh. But on this recent record, the echo chamber sounded too good for what they needed. So I was busting out like the H3000. I haven't used that reverb in yeah. five years. And I loved it. I was trying to find these like 90s kind of snare <laughs> plates and stuff. And I just, yeah. I loved every second of it. So uh, I, I love getting other people's stuff. Do you have to vet it at all? Like, do you, do you want to make sure that you know that what you're getting into is something that you feel that you can attach yourself to? Absolutely. I love uh, yeah. uh, um, my manager, Tracy, uh, one thing I love about her too is is when someone sends us something, you know, they always say, "Well, what's Matt Ray? We're interested in mixing three songs," and and we always start with send us the songs, and I just want to make sure I connect with it emotionally, but uh, yeah, first, and then I'll call them and uh, I like to have a talk or two and a see if I can get them to come visit and then b like kind of what I'm hearing or what they're hearing because nowadays it's hard. Sometimes people think that their rough mix is it. Right. And they just make it better. And some people don't like what they recorded at all and expect you to, to, you know, change it into a waltz and (laughs) and add a hip hop beat on it and stuff like that. So kind of feeling that that stuff out, uh, making sure that we're on the same page kind of emotionally. And usually we are. So then it's 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 fun to do it. What was the session like that you mixed for it, the Elvis stuff that had been recorded in the 70s? That I mean, that sort of the same thing, but also like totally wildly different with probably crazy expectations attached to it. it. It's been amazing. So the first, I've gotten to do, I think, five or six Elvis box sets. Now, the first one was 76, what he recorded in the Jungle Room. He got How tired, crazy is that? Yeah, he got tired of going to Nashville, so they... Recorded him in the jungle room, and it sounded phenomenal. It was four, really? 16 track, but I only had 14. They printed the rough mix onto two. Uh, yeah. Um, and that stuff was great because it was... Um, it was recorded really well it was, and stuff? It was recorded really well. I mean, yeah, sometimes stuff, you know, there's there's um, distortion or, or tape clips or, or you know, mm-hmm. noises, stuff like that. Like, and Elvis wear... So I'm using the mic Elvis would sing in a lot of RE15, but he would wear yeah. rings, and these things would just knock on the mic and... Really? Yeah, oh, God, yeah. He would just, like, you'd hear all these clacking on the mics, but... um, So uh, you have to clean that stuff up, or do you just leave it? You do sometimes. They would print the reverb to the vocal a lot of times, so if you if you took out the, the, the initial transient hit, you would still hear it reverberating, and, and then that's even a weirder sound. Um, <laughs> that's crazy. But that that was the first one I did. So that was studio stuff, and then we did a bunch of live recordings, and that was yep. interesting. And the uh, we like one of them was an eight track from '69 Vegas, where you had full strings, Amazing. horns, all in eight tracks. And then the '70s stuff you're referring to that came out this year, that was um, one of my favorites because it was cut in Studio B with um, yeah. Jerry Kerrigan, Norbert Putnam, uh, James wow. Burton, Chip Young, Charlie McCoy. And what we did was like a Ernst uh, Jorgensen, who's the producer, along with Rob Santos uh, on the projects, they wanted to do a like a Let It Be Naked. So we stripped off all the overdubs. And so um, okay. that's from like the Elvis Country album and stuff. And they they would go and record with this hot band and get this amazing take. They did 40 
two songs in six days or something crazy. 42 master takes. Um, Then they would go back and put vibraphone, Celeste, strings, background vocals, all this stuff on there. And when you strip that stuff away... It's just, just killing. a kick-ass country yeah. album. Yeah, and you really hear how much he's singing and stuff, you know? It was fun to strip all that stuff back. Man, pulling pulling up those tracks and, and having a an Elvis track must be beyond description. Yeah, and it's it's oftentimes it's, you know, four or five CDs, so you're working on it for a month. I just, yeah, you're working on it for like a month and a half. And so, wow. like, somewhere in, like, week three, you'll come in and you're like, <laughs> you know... Uh, you're just kind of going, not going through the motions, but you're not paying, you know, you, you can't every day realize how, what a great day it is <laughs> yeah, at first. Right. And then you'll go, and because of the echo chamber here is here in the hallway, Elvis's voice is in the chamber and I'll go get up to pee or like get a banana. And then you just hear Elvis echoing <laughs> through the building and you go, shit, man, like this is, this is wild. I, I still can't this believe it. This is me. This is, yeah. yeah. And I still, I still, I don't think you'll ever settle in i got to work i'm getting to work on elvis stuff it's just uh it is something else man it's been uh i i can't thank the guys at sony enough for sending that to me and they've let me do some lou reed stuff and some chris christopher's and stuff now and i knew a lot of the guys in the band like i know james mm-hmm. burton i know norbert putnam and so to knowing those guys for a couple of years and then get to work on it and and solo out some of their stuff it's just is it like James Burton and those guys in on the Jungle Room stuff? Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. That was uh, that was more the TCB band a little bit. So you had you had okay. Glenn Harden, you had David Briggs. David Briggs is on some of the Studio B stuff too, uh, and that was Ronnie Tut on drums, uh, and okay. then Jerry Sheff would be on bass. Norbert did like three days, I think, or three songs on the on the Jungle Room stuff, Amazing. but all just killer. And then to get to hear the. The, the in-between talk, you know, the, the outtakes, which we, which we leave in the box sets. You can hear a lot in the box sets and, and stuff, and it's just phenomenal. Well, listen, I, I don't want to keep you... I do want to just quickly ask you about um, working with Al Green, though, too. I, I know you did that recently. That was just... As far as I know, it's just one song, right? Yeah, we... we uh, we we got we were talking about I tried to get him to do another one that day I was trying to be sneaky I'm like yeah another one to cut but uh, <laughs> I had sent him four songs uh, and one of them being before the next teardrop falls and and he liked that one a lot and um, he was really excited after that how did it come about like what was the impetus of the whole thing in the first well, place well Amazon had was going to start a new series called the Produced by Playlist and I, they were foolishly going to let me be the first one. Um, and so I got to basically uh, pick out artists I'd like to produce. So we did one with John Prine. We did one with uh, Margot. We did one with um, uh, William Bell and then Aaron Ray. And and I had actually was I had an idea for um, uh, a couple other artists. I never thought Al Green would actually say yes. So I was focusing on some other artists, and they couldn't do it because of scheduling. And so I said, man, Chris Graham, the awesome Chris Graham at Amazon, I said, let's, you know, I've been to his church. He preaches. He still performs sometimes. I wonder if Al Green would do it. And um, yeah. my mutual, our friend Bruce Watson, is one of the owners of Fat Possum, who who handles his back catalog. So yeah. we reached out to Al at his church. and uh, So you, you didn't know him before this? No, no. I, he, he's kind of a mysterious, reclusive man. Um, right. Uh, I thought it would really depend on the song, you know? And so I had sent a couple songs and then this before the next teardrop falls, I was like, this is the one I was trying to think about where he is now in his career, in his life. He's obviously passionate about, you know, um, his church and, Mm -hmm. 
you know, what kind of message would he want to sing if it was secular uh, or would he prefer a gospel song? So I was trying to weigh all those things without knowing him. And um, uh, I sent the Before the Next Teardrop Falls last, but when I heard that one, I thought this is, if he's going to say yes, this is the one. And he called me out of the blue. Uh, I was, I remember where where I was and um, (laughs) I picked it up and uh, it was Al Green. It was incredible. I I probably uh, stuttered through the whole thing, you know? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But uh, he said he liked the Before the Next Teardrop Fall song. So then we uh, picked a date and he came to the studio right at the time he said he would, which is unbelievable. And we cut it in about an hour and a half. And it was... uh, the, all live. Yeah, all live. This is the greatest day in my life. He went back and overdubbed some vocals, like, you know, how he likes to harmonize and double with himself. Yep. So we did some of that. And then the next day, I did the strings and the horns all in a day. Okay, I wondered about and that. And the yeah. background vocals. Um, mixed it real fast, and it was just like, I, that, like that's another thing I still, it's so surreal. On a, on a song like that, it really sounds like, in a way, you were going for, you know, like a, a high records kind of thing like it you know just to keep it super authentic but without like being copying about it or anything but can you just explain how you approach the aesthetics of that single because it's a good example of like capturing the essence of some of those sounds like kind of a dry sort of almost distorted snare drum and the strings are all kind of like panned to one side horns are panned to one side are there some hallmarks that you really went for of the memphis sound on that well with al you know, Al Green is one of the few people um, that before he even starts singing, you know it's an Al Green song. You know, from the first yeah. five seconds, whether it's that snare drum or the horn or whatever, you know it's an Al Green song. And I I am a massive Al Green fan and a big Willie Mitchell, his original producer's fan. And Charles Hodges, who played organ and all that stuff, he played on the song we did. I was going to get his brother, Leroy, okay. who played bass on all the original stuff, but he was out of town. Um, um, they they were such a unit and a thing together. And then Will, uh, Willie and Al came back later in the 2000s and they did that I Can't Stop, and I forget the name of the yeah. other Blue Note record. And it was the same studio. It was the same band, same producer, same artist, but it was that updated sound. And it right. just I felt like it was missing some of the... Uh, it was missing something. N- nothing against those guys. It's a fabulous album. And I, I understand not doing what you've already done. Um, but there is a, a thing to Al. He's kind of like, I was telling this to another friend of mine, he's like apple pie. Like, you know what it looks like, you know what it tastes like. You don't want to see <laughs> apple pie with like, you know, a, a bunch of kale on top. You know, like yeah. at some point you just want apple pie to be apple pie. And when we had this song, I knew I was going to, I wanted to work up the arrangement to be more indicative of like I wanted to be that thing where in five seconds you know that this is Al oh my god is this Al Green before you totally start singing yeah. and I wanted to I think part of that so, so when I knew that he when he started singing too and it was like oh my god he still sounds like he did in 1971 he I, sounds amazing he, still doesn't yeah he? He, he really does and uh, on a on a quick side note when he got there we were so excited and nervous we were playing the song way too fast and he started singing, and if you know that song, I'm a Ram. Yeah. Uh, I always thought that was just Willie Mitchell kind of distorting his vocal or whatever to tape. That's Al manipulating his own voice, kind of like how Elvis does on Jailhouse really? Rock. Yeah, he like, whatever he does, he does it in his it's, throat. 
It's so distorted. Sound yeah, I'm sure song. Willie did distort it too. But but Al's doing that with his voice because we were playing it fast. So he's he came in there and you can kind of hear him do it on the end, like the I'll be there. He like puts the the crunchiness in his own vocal. Wow. And I was like, hey guys, I think Al, I think we need to slow it down and pretty it up, you know. So then the next take, which in being the master take, we slowed it down. That's when he started doing the. If you have a, you know, like the the tender thing, <laughs> yeah. and that's when we we're all like, Whoa. we started just all giggling. But um, but yeah, I, I just uh, I wanted it to. I felt like if it sounded too clean or too modern, it would be yeah. weird. And that's a classic song feeling yeah. too. So you have to treat the song the. It's not just the the artist, but you know what the, what does the song want too thing. So it it was really. Um, I don't know. I I've talking about this is I've spent more time thinking about trying to answer your question than I did when we tracked. It. You know, when we tracked it, you just got in <laughs> yeah, there and just, and go. Um, do you think he appreciated the details that you were bringing to it to kind of give it that authentic he, sound? He was super enthusiastic. Uh, he definitely liked that it was a country song. He really like wanted yeah. to do because he did a lot of great country covers back in the day um so he was more interested in the country side of it than he was i think the you know uh driving high records part of it you know but yeah he had, he he was so enthusiastic and just like uh smiling the whole time it was amazing uh amazing. to have him there but yeah but, but yeah i just wanted to i just all i wanted is for out to sound amazing and for you know it was al green before he he came on the and then, and then you brought the horns and the strings in later. Do you arrange those, or is that you bring in a guy to do the, that, or how does well, that work? Well, the the great thing about Memphis is ever since the day we do like kind of head arrangements. So the strings I gave to Lester Snell. Lester Snell has been a longtime Stax and Will and High Record string arranger. He was the uh, Isaac Hayes's band leader and musical director back in the heyday, and he's just one of the most amazing, brilliant musical minds. So he had the he the night we cut. Finish the Al Green thing. I would have done it all the same day, but I wasn't sure if Al would show up late or not at all mm -hmm. or anything, so yep. I staggered him. But um, uh, Lester came with the night we cut it, and we like went over an arrangement together, and he, he does all the hard work. And then same thing, Mark Franklin of the the Memphis Horn guys that I use, yep. uh, he came up and kind of heard it, and then they came the next day, and we basically... I don't think we tweaked the strings too much on the floor, but the horns, we came up with all the horns basically on the floor live. Okay. Like they would yep. come and listen to it once Trice come with parts and we'd do it. And same thing with the girls. So the girls, Susan and Reba sang uh, the same day we did the horns. So how big is the string section on that? Is it just That's like just six? a quartet. Uh, it's a quartet, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want it to, you know, that Willie stuff is like, Never big, big string. And I, right. I was surprised at how we got the quartet to almost sound like high records strings too. I mean, Lester did the arrangement, but give give me a tip on that. How how did you like? Uh, how well, do you record? Well, a Willie, like that? Willie um, recorded everything through an Ampex three fifty one. It was an eight track. He had him and Les Paul and like one other person had the rare Ampex eight track tube. Uh, machines and then he would mix down to a two-track ampex and he loved rca 77s um yeah so part of it was using uh uh rca i didn't use rca on the mics i uh on the on quickly on the on the al green strings we had just done william bell's session before that and yeah. i thought i'd come up with my best string miking for the quartet and then i had an idea to swap two mics and that's what 
I did on the Al Green thing. That's, I think, the best string sound I've gotten was swapping those two mics. But I end up at the end running it all down, you know, through the Ampex 351, and it adds this level of crust to it. I think. And you, you individually mic the, the four players, or do you just sort of uh, treat it as one? Uh, what I did on that one was I had um, the violin share one microphone. I, know, I don't like to individually mic the violins, and it's, you know, way up high. And then I had a mic on the viol and the cello, uh, and then I had a big room mic, a ribbon room mic, and I mostly use the r- the room as the sound. And if okay. there's individual pizzicato or bowing parts on one, I bring. But I but the thing is, I quickly mix all those strings down to mono, uh, so yeah. I can't. I don't want to ever have to like rebalance. I just mix them to mono, right. be done with it, and then go from right. there. And then it's got. And a is lot that of- a, was that a thing with high to put? Horns on one side and strings on the other. Was that their Willie thing? always? Well, if you listen to those records, they all. I I love hard panning already. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But yeah, Willie would hard pan. Uh, his records, the horns were always to the right. So I always, uh, even like I this guy's record I mixed last week, his horns were all to the right. But I've, I've <laughs> always been a hard panner already. Um, yeah. But yeah, Willie. The, that I've ever since I made records, I've, horns go to the right for for Willie Mitchell. <laughs> oh, that's cool, <laughs> man. Respect. I love it. Unless the artist doesn't like it, then I'll I'll move them. Yeah. But. Well, um, thank you, man. Thanks for talking to me today. It's been great. Well, thanks for having me. Best of luck with um, getting the studio up and running. It sounds exciting. Yeah, come on, come down to Memphis sometime and see it. I love what you do, and uh, hope to meet you one of these days. That would be awesome. Thank you, Steve. All right. Thanks, Matt. All right, Take buddy. care, man. Bye bye. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my conversation with Matt Ross Spang. Hope you enjoyed it. I had a ball doing it. And we will see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.